The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Upside Down is our series that we're in, uh, continuing in this eight-week series going through the eight characteristics of a disciple of Jesus found in the Beatitudes, which are in Matthew chapter 5. And these are eight characteristics that we can expect to see uh, reflected in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so today we continue, it's in our second week in Matthew 5, verse 4. And here is the verse that we'll be looking at this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, there seems to be uh, no more inconsistency uh, for, for happiness than mourning. And yet, Jesus links them together in this sermon. The way that Jesus phrases this, this next beatitude, this next blessing, draws our attention to it, this upside-down teaching, how upside-down his teachings are, how, how there seems to be contradiction or paradox within his teaching. Uh, blessed are those who mourn is like saying, happy are the unhappy. Or blessed are the unblessed. And if mourners are blessed people, then we should wonder, what does it truly mean to mourn? What does it truly mean to be a person who mourns? Now, there's a handful of movies that I won't rent at Redbox or, or, or buy, but when it's on TV, I, it's, I have to watch it. You know, it's one of those movies. Something like Back to the Future or uh, anything that Matt Damon's in or... Uh, <laughs> But this one is Shawshank Redemption. Maybe you've seen it. I have to watch it every time it's on. Now, it's a, it's a story of two men in prison. Uh, one is an innocent man, and one is a, is a guilty man. And both are seeking their own redemption. Both of them are trying to find their own redemption and salvation from prison. And the guilty prisoner's name's uh, Red, and he's serving a life sentence uh, for a murder. And he's up per, for parole every 10 years. And the movie uh, follows this thread of his interviews as he sits down with he, these uh, parole, um, the parole board, where they ask him questions and he gives answers. And they're the ones that determine if he gets to be set free or not. And the movie uh, talks, it shows these different interviews. And the first one is, they ask this question, they say, uh, you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Do you believe you have been rehabilitated? And he says, yes, sir, absolutely, sir. I've learned my lesson. I can honestly say that I'm a changed man. I'm no longer a danger to society. That's God's honest truth. And they take the stamp and they stamp his form, denied. And then you see later, 10 years later, they bring him in again and said, you've served 30 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? And he says, oh, yes, sir, without a doubt. I can honestly say I'm a changed man. No danger to society here. That's God's honest truth. Absolutely rehabilitated. They take the stamp and stamp it, denied. And then again, 10 years later, they bring him in and ask him the same question he's heard before for the past 20 years. You've served now 40 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? And here's what he says. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? There's not a day that goes by that I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here or because you think I should. I look back on the way that I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try and talk some sense into him, tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid is long gone, and this old man is all that's left, and I have to live with that. So you go ahead and stamp that form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. They take out the stamp and stamp approved. Now, these parole officers, I think I should get an Oscar for that or something. Now, these, (laughs) these parole officers 
see something in him that give them a sense that he has truly been rehabilitated. They saw what happens to a man that sees the reality of their crime and it sinks so deep into their soul that they have genuine sorrow, genuine mourning, genuine grief for what they have done. A pain that comes not from punishment, not from being in prison for 40 years, but a pain that comes from just the reality of the crime itself. He had been experiencing, Red, this character, had been experiencing a certain kind of mourning for 40 years. I mean, there was a certain kind of pain, a certain kind of grief. He didn't want to be in there. Imagine being locked up for 40 years. But it was a kind of mourning that did not lead to comfort. And there is a kind of mourning that does not lead to comfort. And there is a kind of mourning that Jesus talks about that does lead to comfort. A gospel comfort, real freedom. And this is what he jumps into, and this is what we'll get into this morning. And from the context of this sermon that Jesus is giving, it's clear that Jesus is not talking about merely a a promising comfort to those who are primarily mourning a physical kind of pain or a loss of a loved one or those who have a loss of something else. He's he's talking about a loss of innocence, a mourning of of a loss of of innocence. It's the kind of mourning that follows the first beatitude that we looked at last week, which was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Last week, we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. We mentioned that when it comes to relationship with God, it's not a matter of acknowledging what we have of value, but realizing our own neediness, realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt in ourselves to do any good that would lead to salvation, forgiveness of sins. And the mark of a genuine Christian is is acknowledging that the very thing that we need to do is recognize our own neediness before God. Mourning is is then the emotional response, the emotional response to this objective realization that we are spiritually needy. So blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize that, wow, I truly have nothing of value that God will look at me and say, hey, that's great, good job, you've earned your way to forgiveness And then mourning is the emotional response that follows that acknowledgement. And so this mourning that Jesus is talking about is it's mourning over sin. The late John Scott uh, listed as one of the top most influential people in the world in 2005. He says this on Christian mourning. He says some Christians imagine that, especially if they are filled Uh, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they must wear this perpetual grin and be continuously boisterous and bubbly. However, the Christian life, according to Jesus, is not all joy and laughter. The truth is there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. So the question for us is not, should a Christian be happy, or should a Christian be sad and somber and sober and mourning? But the real question is, what should make a Christian laugh? And what should make a Christian mourn? There are things that should make us laugh. There are things that should make us weep. So spiritually speaking, mourning is not an optional characteristic. The passage that fleshes it out is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes a letter to the church, and I love this passage. He writes a letter to the church, uh, the church in Corinth. And apparently he said some things that hurt their feelings. And it made them feel really bad about some things, and so he writes them back addressing this issue and kind of uh, explaining himself. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 7. God 
comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his comfort, but also by the comfort he was comforted as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal, still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that I grieve you, though only for a while. And this is what Paul is saying in his letter. He's saying, hey, that's, no, the people are saying, the things that you you know, that we're struggling, that we're not great people, that we're sinning, that really hurt our feelings. And, and Paul is saying, good, I'm glad about that. I'm glad what I said. But then, he's, then you kind of hear this tone. He's like, well, gosh, I'm, I'm really, I'm bummed that I, that I hurt your feelings. That I made you. And I got over it, and then I was glad again that I did those things. <laughs> Why is he saying something like that? Shouldn't a pastor be upset by saying something to hurts my feelings? nine, as it is, I rejoice not because you are grieved, but because you grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And he explains himself. He says, I'm not glad that you're grieving. I'm, I don't just want to see you sad. I don't just want to see you cry. That's not what makes me happy. But I'm glad because I know how godly grief can work. I know how godly mourning can work. It leads to comfort. It leads to Life, it leads to repentance. It leads to a right perspective for how we ought to live. And therefore, if by my words to you, it causes you unrest and it challenges your life in the right direction to cast your life on the grace of God, then I'm glad I did what I did. And then he goes on in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced you. Also what eagerness to clear yourself. What fear, what feel, what punishment. At every you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. And warning, this kind of grief, this godly grief, a godly grief that leads to repentance, it led to an innocence, a clear conscience. A Christian is not a person who is merely sorry for their sins against God, but one who in their sorrow is driven by faith to seek Christ and repent of their sin, where their, their, their sin just soaks really deep into their soul, where they are really sorry and mourning over what they have done. We see so many examples of this in, in Scripture that are so helpful for us because we have this very small verse and other verses, I believe, help bring some light onto what does Jesus mean about godly mourning. One is I want to go through three things and a few different passages of Scripture that expand on this a little bit. Mourning that leads to comfort is spontaneous. Um, look in, in Luke chapter 7, you remember this this lady of the city that rushes into dinner and sees Jesus. I'll read along. You can follow along. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment, and he said to her, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace." 
So this woman says that she's a woman of the city. And that doesn't mean she's a woman who lived in the city. She's a woman of the city. Like a woman of real ill repute. Like we know that all these people are like, they even said in this conversation, if Jesus, if you only knew what kind of woman she was, you would not be talking to her right now. And yet, full of the weight of her sin, the grief of her sin, she rushes into Christ, weeps on his feet, washes his feet with the hair on her head. It's spontaneous. Like real gospel morning is not planned. It's not, you know, tomorrow. I know I've been doing some things. I know my heart is far from God, but tomorrow is going to be a great day to set aside some time and go and seek forgiveness. See, real mourning, an indication of real godly mourning and godly sorrow is that when we recognize it, when it's exposed by someone else or when we see it in our own heart, we go quickly to seek forgiveness from someone that we have wronged or from God. We don't, this lady did not say, you know what, he's at dinner right now. I don't want to inconvenience him. She rushes through, opens the door, and runs to him. Real mourning is spontaneous. Another is that mourning that leads to comfort is free. King David committed adultery with a married woman. He had her husband killed, and he tried to cover it up. King David was a man that had a lot of sin in his life. And he writes this as he's, as he's remembering God's mercy in Psalm 51. He says, you, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David is saying, you know, if, if I was just looking for rules, like something just to do to check off the list that I could be forgiven, then you would tell me and I would do those things. But what you really seek is not a, a spirit that just, or a, an attitude or behavior that just does things for you, but an attitude that is broken before you, that is really mourning. It's free, meaning that we are not under any obligation to do it. No one is forcing us to mourn our sin. No one is forcing us. Real mourning is not a mourning that we are uh, forced to do by someone else. See, sacrifices are the law, the law of God. You have to do it. You're required to do it. David is recognizing the heart of this. little parenting tidbit, if you make your child say he's sorry, probably not that sorry. At least not at the moment. So mourning that leads to comfort is also, here's the third one, it's also spiritual. Maybe you remember the, the, the story of the prodigal son. He dishonors his father, he takes his inheritance, his portion, and he runs away. He dishonors his dad, he shames him, he embarrasses him, he says, I'm going to do what I want to do, and he runs off and he wastes it. He parties, he goes to Vegas and just wastes it all. And then in Luke 15, we read this. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he, and he embraced him and kissed him. And likewise, David, when he was caught in adultery, his friend came up to him. And David said, and after confronting him, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what I mean by this, that, that mourning over sin, godly mourning that leads to comfort is spiritual? is because we realize that when we sin, we're actually sinning against God. Even if we do something that harms somebody else, it is primarily an offense against God. It is a spiritual sin. 
our failures are not just failures against other people. That's why it doesn't work when we say, well, I know I'm doing something wrong, but it's not hurting anybody. Our sins are primarily against God. Mourning, gospel mourning, that leads to comfort is, is hatred of sin for the mere sake of, of what sin is. It's not just an intellectual understanding that sin is bad and God doesn't like it, so we better not do it. But it begins with the love of God and our hatred of sin. Sin is an act of hostility against God. It's contrary to God's nature. It's against his will. It's rebellion. When we sin, we're actually fighting with God. We're actually contending with God. We are like wrestling with God when we sin. You know, all these stories, as we kind of buzz through these passages, they all remind me of, of one thing about gospel morning. All these stories remind us of the same reality, that comfort always comes after gospel morning. The opposite is true with a person who follows sin and the devil. Why is sin so attractive? I mean, for one reason, it shows us the best thing first. And then when we indulge in that, when we follow that, when we're tempted into it, then we're experiencing the suffering afterwards that it leads to. And we say, why, didn't I, why did I do that? Why didn't somebody warn me about this? Why didn't somebody stop me? No one mentioned this would happen. No one mentioned I would feel this kind of regret and pain because of my actions. That is why sin has so many followers. That is why you and I will fall into temptation because there's, we're enticed by it. It shows us this really shiny thing first. It shows us this wonderful thing first, and then we feel the pain of it later. And Jesus shows us that mourning first, then, and, and then he pronounces blessing. Consider this. Look at the, the life of Jesus. As you have learned, and as you've read through Scripture, and you, you look at his life. Judging by his life alone, his circumstances, his lifestyle, the things that happened to him, is being a Christian a highly attractive thing? No way. Like, this is like the worst. Like, who wants that life? He was considered a man of sorrows. There's not a single recording in Scripture where Jesus laughs. And yet, there's a lot of recordings where he is crying, where he is praying, where he is weeping, where he is burdened. His heart broke at the sight of sin. Not because he was sheltered, not because he was homeschooled, okay? (laughs) He didn't see sin and feel this tremendous amount of burden because he didn't understand. He felt this tremendous amount of burden because he actually was more aware of what sin really is better than anyone who has ever lived. He knew and knows the full weight. He hates sin so much that it just, it, it was such a burden that he carried. And even the night before Jesus was crucified, he prays to God the Father. Maybe you're aware of this verse. If not, it's, it's incredibly enlightening to the burden he carried. He says in John 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to the Father, glorify your name. A voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood and heard it, and, and as it thundered, and others said, An angel has spoken to him, and Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. And I love that. Your sake. These things have, this just happened, 
for your benefit so that you can understand how things work. Not mine, I understand. Jesus is saying, I know how this works. I am about to be crucified. I'm about to be killed. And God's desire is not to save me from this morning, but to see me through it. I get it. I understand the blessing, the comfort comes after mourning, not before. But this was said so that you can understand how grief works. That God is graciously and perfectly in charge and in control of our mourning. And even the mourning that I am about to endure... Jesus says. Even this great wickedness that is about to happen, God is in charge of this and is perfectly aware of what it will accomplish. During Jesus' public ministry, his first recorded miracle was the turning of water to wine at a party, at a wedding. He did this at the very end of the party. After everybody tasted the, the nasty, cheap, you know, four-buck chuck wine, that was just basic, common wine, Jesus brings out this delicious wine. Even so much so that the, the head of the party, the MC of the party, they said, who saves the best wine for last? Telling us, among many other things that we can learn from this, is that Jesus is the king of the party, that he is the king of comfort, that he is the king of laughter, and joy, that he is the king of comfort. And there is no spiritual blessing without spiritual mourning over sin. Spiritual mourning is necessary for spiritual comfort. And spiritual mourning has, it has purifying properties. It has, it has purifying qualities about it. Friday afternoon, Janae and I went out with our kids and drove down in the afternoon. And maybe you remember Friday, how disgusting the sky was. Like, you couldn't even see the mountains, just this haze of, of dust and dirt and pollution. It was just nasty, just a gross day. Hot and muggy and humid and just polluted. And I knew that rain would come, and I was hoping that rain would come. But it was the kind of, when the rain came, it was, kind of, it was the kind of rain that was pretty abusive. Do you remember that? How it just it passed through the, the city real quickly and went went north out of town and it was really gross. And, and we're driving in a car and we actually had to pull over and I sit back, we pulled over and I'm talking to my two year old, almost three year old in the back, and I said, Okay, Cohen, uh, it's it's about to rain and it's gonna be lightning and it's gonna thunder and it's gonna be really loud. But I'm brave. And you're brave. Say it with me, I'm brave. And he says, I'm brave. Say it's gonna come and it's gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. And we sat there, and the sky would lit up. And then there would be this loud crack. And I look in the back, and I, I see that he's questioning his own enthusiasm about this. <laughs> he wasn't so sure how he, how he felt. And I would say, I'm brave. And what, he, what came out of his mouth was more of a question, you know. I'm brave. I'm brave. And we did this over and over again. And, then, and now, he, now he wants thunder. He wants it, like every night. He's like, no thunder, Daddy. He's like, no. And all those scary... See, we needed this. Like, it's something that we even asked for, but the storm was so tumultuous and so painful. It was so scary. But I knew that what would happen when the storm came, it would, it would wipe away, it would purify. It would wipe away the pollution. It would settle the dust. It would clear the air. It would bring relief and comfort. And that is what 
gospel mourning can do. That's what spiritual mourning can do. It, it causes us to confess. It draws us to a place where we, are, where we cast our life on the, on, the, on the grace of God. And when we do that with a, a contrite heart and a humble spirit, we receive this blessing that only God can give. And it reveals this pollution in our heart and it clears it out and it cleanses us. It puts us in this right posture for the first time to truly receive the comfort from God. It's a mourning that causes us to, to seek Jesus for forgiveness. To see our neediness, to, of utter hopelessness and neediness without Him. And I believe that as our capacity to mourn increases, I think our capacity to receive the comfort of God also increases. It's like a balloon, I think, that as, as our capacity to experience real gospel mourning grows, it expands also our ability to receive and to know the comfort that only God can give. And it's really painful. It's painful to endure that mourning. But the reward is such a blessing. So refreshing. Jesus extends this comfort to all who come to him and trust in him and find him. And this is possible because I think Christ experienced most dramatically, more than anyone else, the right kind of mourning for us. He experienced this painful mourning. He experienced the weight of our sin, the full weight of the sin of mankind, the real offense against God Jesus experienced in his own life. Do you know how people are healed from poison, from snake bites? You've heard of like antivenin or... Um, so someone gets bitten by a rattlesnake and they, 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 they basically inject you with antivenin. And do you know how they make antivenin? I mean, it's pretty amazing. They take venom from a pit viper or poisonous snake and they inject it into a sheep. And then the sheep then produces these antibodies, these life-giving agents to attack the poison that's just been injected into them. And then doctors collect these life-giving agents, they extract it from the sheep, and they then inject it into the infected person. What a magical picture of something beautiful that comes from suffering. What a magical picture of what Jesus actually does for us in our sin. That Jesus hates sin so much that he is willing to become sin for our sake. Experiencing suffering and full loss and full brunt of the consequences of sin. God's hatred, God's anger, God's wrath. So that you and I, by trusting in him, can find comfort, salvation, healing. He mourns over sin so much that he is willing to be bitten by the poison of death, receiving that curse in his own life so that we can be blessed. He is that sheep. He is the Lamb of God who is bitten by sin and gives us life. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It would not be just a simply nice saying. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. Isn't it nice? No, Jesus is saying, this is a promise to embrace, to hold, to trust in, to rest your life on. 
You can believe it. Sin creates a curse. It's a, a poison that puts us, everyone who's committed it, everyone who is born into human nature, fallen, receiving the guilt of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we're cursed, we're poisoned. You know the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi? You know the last word in the book of the Old Testament? So the Old Testament was written, the last word was written, and then it was, it was finished, and there was 400 years of silence before the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. 400 years of silence from hearing from God. The last word in the Old Testament, in Malachi, is cursed. Cursed. And the first word in Jesus' public ministry His first sermon, his first word, blessed. We live under this curse because of our sin. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, now you will see the full manifestation of the blessing of God becoming true. That God in human flesh, the Son of Man, the promise to you, we become bitten by sin, and yet he will be perfect sinless, taking our sin, and yet sinless, and he'll die the death that you and I deserve so that we can have the the life and healing and righteousness that only he deserves. Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The promised spirit was the spirit who gave us a new life, a new heart. The spirit is the one responsible for resurrecting our hearts because we are dead in sin. It is a complete change of our nature. The promise of the Holy Spirit is not only new life, but also comfort, conviction of sin, joy, the promised presence of God in our life, our helper, to see us through our, comfort, our, our mourning, to see us through our pain, to remind us of the promise of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. And all of that comes because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus doesn't refrain from entering our sin, our fallen nature, our broken world. Instead, he humbly came to the world to feel what we feel and to face what we face and yet remained absolutely sinless. That means that in our time of need, in your time of need, we can run to Jesus. Now, I believe that this passage, this blessed are those in this context, it is spiritual mourning over sin, but I believe that as it talks about a spiritual kind of mourning, we know that Jesus is also a great comforter of our physical kind of mourning, that God cares about our whole being, not just our spiritual life. He, calls about our, he cares about our material life. He cares about our physical pain. He, ca- he cares about the circumstances that you and I face every day. And our spiritual reality should inform our physical reality. Whether it's mourning of a loss of a loved one, whether it's mourning punishment, whether it's mourning sickness or inconvenience, whether it's mourning a loss of a job, whether it's mourning loneliness, whatever it is, Jesus extends comfort to all who come to him and rest in him and trust in him. Do not be insensitive 
Do not be hardened in your heart so much that sin, that you're resisting what sin is trying to tell you in your life. Whether you, whether you, so much so that you're resisting this mourning of the sin in your life. But yield to him. Humble yourself and receive this promised comfort because he truly cares. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.